Hey everyone, Matt Wakeling here and you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. This is the show I produce in Sydney, Australia and I hope you're doing really great wherever you are in the world. Now today in replay we have my conversation with Ian S. Port. Ian is an American author who has written the brilliant book The Birth of Loud which details the electrification of the solid body guitar following the actions and innovations of Leo Fender and Les Paul and other contenders at the time. It's a fantastic book. It's a fascinating conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by The Pedal Movie, a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the Music Gear Marketplace Reverb. I am super excited about this film. The Pedal Movie features nearly 100 interviews with people like Steve Vai, Peter Frampton, Jay Maskus, Billy Corgan, and more, including some of our Guitar Speak podcast alumni like Dweezil Zappa, Sarah Lipstate, Johnny Barmer, and Brian Wampler. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit www.thepedalmovie.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that'll give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free seven-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Ian Esport, welcome back to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. We loved uh, having you on our Stratocaster special um, podcast and, and great to have you to talk about your book in, in its fuller context. And the book, of course, is The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul and the Guitar Pioneering Rivalry that Shaped Rock and Roll. So that book was launched in, I believe, January this year, 2019. And we're on the edge of the paperback being uh, released in November, around the 19th, I believe. Yep, that's right. That's awesome. Congratulations on the on the second printing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, and before we talk about the book, can I get a bit of your backstory? I understand you've been playing guitar pretty much all your life and uh, grew up in California. Um, these days, you're located in, in in New York. Let's um let's talk guitars first. When did you start playing, and what what inspired that? Um, it was funny. I started playing when I was ten years old. And, you know, I kind of grew up in a sort of musical family. My dad was into music. His parents were into music. There was music everywhere. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you're 10 years old and you grew up listening to rock and roll, obviously, it's pretty fun to the idea of picking up an electric guitar. So I started out with that. My first my first guitar was a PV Predator, um, like a PV Stratocaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those. Yeah, and it's actually I still have it. It's a pretty pretty great little guitar. I think we paid like two hundred fifty bucks for it or something new. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
And um, and what about the writing career? Because you've you've um, I should back up. You've uh, you're in New York now. Uh, but you've been in California. You've written for Rolling Stone, The Village Voice. You were the music editor at the San Francisco Weekly. Um, now high-selling uh, book author. What's how did you stumble into writing? Um, you know, writing again was just something that always interested me. I was always a reader. Um, and I loved writing about music from an early age. You know, I wrote music reviews for my high school paper, for my college paper. I started freelancing as a music journalist in college and just kind of kept up with it, you know, kind of wandering in and out doing newspaper journalism and then ended up, um, doing full-time, uh, music editing later on and freelancing. And it's just, you know, it's kind of my, I would say even maybe my core passion, um, writing and music. Those are the things I love. So that's what I've been doing. Fantastic. What a good combination. And obviously very much the focus of, um, of your latest work, The Birth of Loud. Um, is this your first book, eh? It is, yeah. Wow, well done. Well, it's been so well received. There's been some excellent uh, critical reviews across um, lots of different agencies. What, what inspired you to write it? You know, when I was um, writing about music in San Francisco, I was going to shows like, you know, three or four nights a week and, and just hanging out with musicians. And, you know, as a guitar player, like I understood a little bit about the story of Leo Fender and Les Paul. I kind of knew a little bit. But then just like seeing the kind of importance that instrument that musicians kind of the the importance that musicians imbue their instruments with you know just like how much they value them and how much it contributed to their art making and what it allowed them to do and how they felt about it i just felt like the story was maybe richer than it, i think people the broader public had appreciated and i was so fascinated as i looked into it more by just the characters of Leo Fender and Les Paul and just how different they were. Um, but at the same time, sort of how similar uh, and just the incredible arc that they had. And and it was just like, I just saw it kind of pretty quickly, like, wow, this is this could be a really cool story, both from the standpoint of music and guitars, but also just kind of, you know, from the standpoint of an American life and, and what it means to kind of be a success and innovate and create and, and that sort of stuff. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, what what sort of research goes into it? Like, how long does it take you to research and then write a book of this stature? It takes a really, really long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it took me about three years to do the book. Okay, um, and and like so, you know, the research was pretty intense. There were lots of. Um, I traveled all over the United States to different cities, interviewing people, going to archives. I did archival research at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where Les Paul's papers are. And I went through the many, many file boxes of his life's papers. Oh, wow. Um, got access to some, like, the kind of best surviving trove of documents from the Fender Company, which are in the possession of a really great guy and the preeminent Fender historian in the world named Richard Smith, oh, yes. um, who, who lives in, in California and who's the author of a great book on the history of Fender himself. And he's kind of the definitive source. Um, but he helps me do a lot of the research just by sort of loaning me some of his files. And then I went and talked to, you know, everyone else who was alive, everyone else who was related to anyone who was alive then. Um, and of course, read like about 100 books to put it all together. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I noticed you, you spoke to um, uh, Phyllis Fender, Leo's surviving um, second wife, who was uh, definitely was around for a long, a long time towards the back of uh, Leo's career. That must have been a, a trip speaking to her. 
It was. It was such a pleasure to see, to hear about Leo Fender from her perspective, yeah, you know, because yeah. when she met Leo, he was kind of already like this vaunted figure, you know, he was already, had already been a huge success and she met him as just like, you know, kind of a regular guy um, and, and a sweetheart. And it was really fun to hear about that. Very cool. Earlier, you, you mentioned about the richness of the human story in this. And that, that was for me, one of the, one of the thrills about reading the book and, you actually, it's like you read my mind for one of my questions. You said that Leo and Les, they were very different, but very similar. And that that's very immediate when you read the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in, in the most sort of fundamental way, um, you know, Leo and Les were six years apart in life. Um, they both kind of came of age during the Depression. They were both um, incredibly obsessive incredibly hardworking people who had what I came to learn was sort of a mentality that people had had gained in the Great Depression, which was, I think of it as what they call like no self-imposed limitations. Like neither of them would believe that there was, they would never tell themselves there was anything they couldn't do. So that's kind of how like you get Leo Fender building an amplifier line, building a guitar line in the back of a radio shop when he has no idea how to play guitar <laughs> and has one eye and like really is just like, you know, borrowing money, hiding from his creditors. You know, his wife is supporting him. His wife is paying his employees, like doing the most crazy things just because he believed that he could do them. And of course, he worked very hard to pull them off. Um, and the way that they were different is so striking, too, because, you know, Leo was a backroom kind of innovator. He was a tinkerer. He was, you know, what today we would call kind of a nerd who just wanted to kind of engineer. He wanted to build stuff because he was so good at it and loved it. Um, whereas Les Paul was like this guy who had been a performer from the time he was like eight years old, you know, joking and playing the harmonica for his school classmates. Um, you know, he dropped out of high school to become a professional musician on the radio, making a really great salary at a time when, you know, most people didn't have a job in America or not most people, but you know, at the height of yeah, the depression. Sure. Um, and so Les was public, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be lauded. He wanted to be on stage. He wanted the applause. Um, and so they were so different in that way. And yet, you know, they were both obsessed with sound, both so hardworking and it ended up kind of putting them on this parallel path. I had no idea that they actually knew each other and had, had a friendship, had a relationship. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the big, that was kind of a huge aha moment for me when I when I sort of found that out. And, you know, it was a hard thing to illuminate because you saw the people on both sides kind of reference this relationship. Um, and, of course, Les talked about it. And, you know, you have kind of evidence and, and different accounts of how these meetings went down. But they did know each other. You know, Les had his... Um, his backyard studio in Hollywood in the late 40s. And, and that studio was like a magnet for every kind of musician and then every sort of electronics tinkerer in L.A. or in Southern California at the time. And, and Les was hanging out with, you know, country Western musicians. And those same country Western musicians were getting pitched by Leo Fender to use his amplifiers, his very early amplifiers. And so it was only really a matter of time before Leo Fender showed up at Les Paul's house and the two of them, you know, started talking. I hope you are enjoying today's interview. Now, this podcast is brought to you by The Pedal Movie, a feature-length film all about effects pedals created by the music gear Mark Place Reverb. 
Now you know we love guitar pedals here on the Guitar Speak podcast and we're super excited on the release of this film. The pedal movie explores how effects pedals and their builders have shaped modern music and guitar playing over time, from the fuzz pedal experiments of the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix through the shoegaze and indie rock of the 90s and up to the modern day use of effects. Reverb also speaks with builders and leaders from more than 50 pedal brands to answer the big question, how did guitar pedals get so big? Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play and Vudu. For more info, check out thepedalmovie.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by master guitar teacher Joe Elliott. Now, I was a beta tester for the course, and as a music educator myself, I was very impressed by the logical layout and format of the course. Heavyweight guitarists such as Brett Garsett and Greg Koch have also endorsed the program, so check it out at www.fretboardbiology.com. Okay, back to our interview. You describe an arms race to electrify the guitar, and Paul Bigsby is an, also an interesting figure in this in this race. What was the need for the amplification, and how um, how does Bigsby fe- feature in this as well? Sure. So <clears throat> one of the important things to understand is like at the time period we're talking here just after World War II, there's been this huge social upheaval and everyone is in a different part of the country from where they usually are. And they're suddenly coming into like finding out about different kinds of music. Um, And music is just getting louder. The venues are getting bigger. Um, Music is becoming more focused on kind of rhythm and the low end, the drums. Um, And, you know, electric guitars just like couldn't keep up with that at that point. I mean, the electric guitar had been on the market you know, since Gibson's first one came out in about 1937, but they were basically amplified acoustic guitars and they just couldn't really match the kind of louder, more dance hall kind of sound that music was going in, especially in Southern California. So, you know, you have this huge kind of country Western, Western swing situation happening in, in Los Angeles. And one of the people who's there besides Leo Fender and Les Paul is a guy named Paul Bigsby who is a little bit older than both of them. He's like this really tall, kind of burly voice, cigarette-smoking guy who's just like an incredible craftsman. Like, he can build anything. He designs um, patterns that could be used for engine parts, for submarine sides, for whatever they want. And he is a passionate country-western player, although he's not a pro, and a fan who's friends with many of the big players on the scene. So Paul Bigsby kind of starts putting his engineer his design and sort of craftsman mind toward building better steel guitars for musicians and then eventually he builds this kind of prototype solid body standard electric guitar for a guy named Merle Travis that ends up really kind of becoming a breakthrough in the history of the instrument. There's some controversy around that guitar built for Travis and Leo Fender's access to the guitar and the influence on on Fender's work. Could you speak into that? So what we know is that in May 1948, Paul Bigsby gives this guitar that he's custom built to Merle Travis. Sometime around then, Leo Fender sees Merle Travis playing this guitar and asks to borrow it. And Merle Travis gives it to him for a week and Leo gives it back. And then some period after that, Leo comes up with 
the prototype for the Telecaster, probably that same year, but certainly by the following year. And it looks very, very much like Bigsby's Merle Travis guitar. Now, it's made of different materials. It's much less fancy. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of more cheaply put together. It's not this beautiful creation, but the dimensions are similar. The pickup arrangement is similar. The knobs are a little bit similar. And so there's a real sense, and I think an accurate one, that Leo borrowed a lot from Paul Bigsby's Merle Travis guitar when he started designing the Telecaster. And that's a controversial thought because, you know, Fender, I think, is rightly credited with having introduced the commercial solid body electric guitar a couple years later. Um, but Bigsby, uh, you know, attested to this. Certainly Merle Travis attested to this. Even Leo Fender's own assistants, like George Fullerton, attested to the fact that Leo saw that guitar and that it influenced him. You, you mentioned George Fullerton there. Another aspect of the book I loved was finding out more about these names, which I had always known the names. People you know, like George Fullerton, uh, Bill Car uh, Carson, Freddie Tavari. I knew a little of their story, but not much. But you really humanise these names that many of us have a fleeting recollection of. Yeah, that was a really fun part of the story. And to see like how this kind of you know, Leo Fender kind of developed almost like this this circle of, of friends and admirers, and, and he called them his guinea pigs, and people who would say, hey, Leo, why don't you move the knob over here? Why don't you sand this part down a little bit? Or like, can you get a fourth pickup on there, you know? And they would ask Leo for stuff. And then there were people like George Fullerton, who was Leo's kind of right-hand man, who, you know, like, Leo Fender couldn't play guitar, so he kind of depended on George Fullerton, who could play, to kind of tell him, you know, oh, you should make it feel like this. It should, you know, kind of fit this scale a little bit. So Fullerton really did a lot of the early drawings for the Telecaster um, and helped with Leo's project kind of throughout his entire life. Les Paul, that is a, a complicated figure. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, Les was tinkering up with uh, pickups and inventions up until the day he died, and he never really stopped. I mean, he was a guy who thought, he, he was kind of both front of stage and sort of back of stage, right? He wanted to be up there. He wanted to be in front of the crowd. He wanted everyone to know how great he was, how funny he was, what a great guitarist he was. Um, and at the same time, you know, he, he wanted to pioneer multi-track recording, which is some huge debt that we owe to Les. Um, and he wanted to, you know, develop a solid body electric guitar when Gibson had told him that it wasn't interested. Um, he went and, and sort of modified these Epiphones himself so that they would get the kind of sustaining, um, purely electric sound because he thought that that would make him stand out as a performer. So he was kind of an amazing guy in that sense of just like, he had such a rare combination of, of charm and incredible musical talent and also just like technical know-how and an absolutely tireless work ethic. Both companies, Fender and Gibson, um, passed hands through through different owners. They've both had low times um, and they've both risen at, at different periods as well. Um, you, you detail this in, in, in some, some length in the book. What's, what's your take on those companies, where they stand now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think um, obviously, you know, Gibson has had a bit of a rough time of late, you know, going through the, the bankruptcy proceedings last year. Um, I want to think that they're kind of finding their way. And I, I, I sort of feel good about where they're going and what I'm seeing. I'm curious to sort of 
you know, hear what the other, what other people think about that. But my sense is that I, you know, to be honest, I haven't played a ton of the brand new Gibson, so I can't say how they speak up to, or how they, you know, sort of stand up to the, the, you know, the heights of the nineties or the aughts or whatever we, uh, we want to say are the best Gibsons. Um, and I think that, you know, when I look at kind of Fender's product line and their marketing and just sort of the kind of penetration that they seem to have in the culture, I feel like, you know, in what has become a very, tough climate at least in the united states for the electric guitar fender has kind of figured it out a little bit i mean they've kind of managed to brand themselves as being sort of genre uh agnostic um and they're not just you know the company of like white rock dudes anymore i think they're doing a good job of of presenting themselves as being for everyone no matter what kind of music they play what kind of they what kind of um you know genre they want to play in and so I, I think Fender's probably doing a little bit better right now, but I think Gibson could get there. Yeah, exciting times. Exciting times for, for both companies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I loved it how you, I mean, the, a, a large focus of your book is, of course, what's on the cover, the Les Paul, Leo Fender, but then you, you continue on with the stories of the companies and, and Leo and, and Les Paul as they continued in other areas too, which was, which was really cool. So the the book itself, um, and that goes to paperback in November, as we said earlier. That must be an exciting period for you, heading up onto uh, on that launch after the initial launch in January. Yeah, it's great to see. I hope it gets out there, and I hope you know the paperback makes it more accessible to people. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Now, this podcast was brought to you by The Pedal Movie, the feature-length film all about effects pedals created by Reverb. Reverb's The Pedal Movie is available now on iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. For more information, visit thepedalmovie.com. The show was also brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by ex-head of guitar at GIT, Joe Elliott. Check out fretboardbiology.com for more information. Alrighty then, you have been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling, and as the legendary German rocker Michael Schenker once told me, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.